Hello and welcome. You are listening to the very first instalment of something brand new called the East London History Show with me, Elena Guthrie. Now, I've lived in the area for about five years. I originally come from Essex, but the more Londony part on the end of the central line. Always feels important to make that distinction. Um, so I've always been knocking about the area. And I think it's fair to say I have become absolutely consumed by the history of East London and understanding how our little corner of London came to be. Trust me, I'm an absolute nightmare to walk around with now. I'm on a mission to learn as much about the area as possible and I want you to come with me. I'll be here every Sunday at 10 o'clock with a show that hopefully you find as fascinating as I do. So if you haven't already done so yet, it is a Sunday. I want you to put the kettle on, make yourself a cup of tea, relax and get comfortable because trust me, you'll want to pay attention to every single detail of this first one. It's frankly iconic. Some would say maybe blooming, iconic, blossoming with history even. Some 10 out of 10 dad jokes from me there. If you haven't already guessed what we're doing this week, it's only fitting that we echo another Sunday morning East London tradition. And I am, of course, talking about Columbia Road. Nestled between the restless streets of Shoreditch, Old Street and Hackney, sits a street that has been the stomping ground of farmers, refugees, philanthropists, dickens, murderers, survivors, hipsters, and let's face it, a cafe or two, or three. And to help us uncover its rich, fascinating, and sometimes quite gruesome history is a local legend and seemingly jack of all trades and also master of them all too, Linda Wilkinson. Linda grew up on the street and has written three books about it, Watercress But No Sandwiches, A Strange Kind of Paradise, and Columbia Road of Blood and Belonging. She's a busy woman. She's also a playwright, novelist, historian, scientist, and human rights activist. So I'm very grateful that she was able to squeeze us in. Now enough of me nattering. Let's dive in to the history of Columbia Road. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm very, very pleased to be here. We're talking about Columbia Road. You've written many a book. Yes. On the road. Let's start off. Tell me about your connection to Columbia Road. Well, my family have lived in that immediate area since about 1860. My mum and dad were bombed out of uh, the next street, Baxendale Street, uh, in the war, and they moved into Columbia Road in 1942. I was born in 1952 in Bethnal Green Hospital and I lived at 77 Columbia Road until I was 21. Wow. Does 77 still exist? Yes, it's two doors up from the Royal Oak. Ah, wow. Okay, that's nice that we can contextualise it now. And so let's take it back. Talk to us about what the area traditionally was, maybe, can we say as far back as the medieval period? Oh, certainly. It was agricultural land. There were ostensibly uh, some watercress beds because it's got quite a few ponds underneath it. Of course, they're built over now. For the majority of the time, though, it was arable land for crops, both to feed the City of London, but mostly to feed cattle. And also it was one of the areas where when they brought cattle and sheep through from Essex to go to the slaughterhouses in London, they fattened them up before they went to slaughter. So it was, it was arable land. And until about 1834-ish, the only building there was a barn and that became, it was knocked down basically and it became the birdcage pub. And that was the only building for some considerable time. Mm. Um, and in the... 19th century, the land got bought up by a philanthropic group of people from Barnet in North London to house people that were going to ostensibly work at the docks, but it was far from the docks, so it didn't actually happen, and a whole different scenario came about with the woodworking industry, which was supplied 
by wood, with wood and veneer and all of the things they needed by the Regent's Canal, which is only a 10-minute walk away. Let's talk a little bit about the Birdcage pub then. Why, why was that there? It was part of when they brought through the cattle. People mm. needed somewhere to stop off. Thinking about what that area would have looked like then... Would you say that the Birdcage pub is really the only thing that rec- would be recognisable today? Oh, completely. Completely. Because yeah. would it have all just been pasture land, yes. fields, yes. stables? Yes. So it would have been sitting there all in its own. Yes. Because there was the city wall around London, mm-hmm. and so everything outside of that was for what? Well, it was actually to supply London with milk, with food. And, of course, some of the other industries... When they came over, for instance, the Huguenots, they weren't allowed inside the city of London. So they established their watchmaking and jewellery and goodness knows what else industries outside and around the city in, in the late 17th century. But until that point, it had all been just farmland, I guess. The Columbia Road we know today wasn't always called Columbia Road. Nope. What was its original...? It was split in two. The shape of it's been there, because I think it was a walkway through to Smithfield. It was broken up into Crabtree Row, which one assumes there were crab trees growing on it, and Birdcage Walk, which went from where the Birdcage is now to Hackney Road by another pub, which is no longer a pub, called the Nags Head, which is opposite Goldsmiths Row. And that was another stop-off point, and that was quite an early development, actually, around the Nags Head pub. And so the Nags Head pub, so if we're thinking today, Hackney City Farm... Opposite that. Opposite that. Mm -hmm. And then... Crabtree Row is from... It went from Shoreditch Church to the Birdcage. Do you know why those names existed? Well, I think Crabtrees probably grew there. I think there might have been a small orchard. If you look at the really old maps, it's very difficult to tell. And, of course, the Birdcage, because the Birdcage pub was called the Birdcage pub from the time the Huguenots came because they would go there on a Sunday with their birds and they would have singing competitions for the best bird song. And that's when I first went back, because I moved back, having been born there, I went away and came back. And, of course, when I came back, still still in 86, the Birdcage pub had hundreds of birdcages hanging from its ceiling. That was its main feature. Wow. And that's all now gone, sadly. I mean, that's so beautiful. It did, it did, it did. Just to think of that. Wow. So every Sunday afternoon, because the Huguenots on Crabtree Row... By that point, the farmers had sold up to the highest bidder, I guess, and they'd bought the land, some of them, and they were quite wealthy because a lot of them were in the silk weaving business. So they built summer houses. So they had their summer houses, can you believe it, (laughs) where Civil House now is. And they would go on Sunday afternoons after lunch and have these singing competitions with birds. I mean, it must have been quite an exceptional life, actually, if you had the money. And so talk to us about the Huguenots, the silk weaving industry. The garment industry and trade is such a fundamental part of East London history. Mm, mm. So how did that come about? The silk weaving predated the Huguenots coming over in the late 18th century. From about 1300, there were some Dutch weavers around the edges of the city, not in the east, though. But the big influx of Huguenots after the revocation of the Edict of Nantes in 1688, I believe, they came en masse and they brought with them their industries. And the biggest and most profitable one was silk weaving. And over the years... That died out really by the 80, late 1830s, 40s, although it was still, you know, pockets here and there. And be, because it had been established, I suppose, garment making became something that was established in, in, in sort of in the mindset of the communities. So just to briefly interrupt here and explain who the Huguenots were, they were French Protestants in the 16th and 17th centuries. They were persecuted on and off in the 1500s by the French Catholic government until finally there was a mass exodus of them around 1643 after King Louis XIV ramped it up a gear with the violence, putting it nicely. They fled across Europe, the United States and Africa, um, which actually ended up being a bit of a disaster for France as the country lost a significant portion of its cultural and economic influence. And in some cities, they lost half their working population. But France's loss was England's gain. There were skilled, educated workers, especially in the textile industry. So because the Brits weren't particularly fond of Louis XIV, the Huguenots were given safe passage and their skills were very welcome. The next 
big influx that really, really drove the garment making was when the Russian Jews came in at the end of the 19th century. And it was what they could do. I mean, they did whatever they could do to survive. Shoemaking, that sort of thing. Obviously food. But that was when the real sort of sweatshop started to get set up. So that's from the sort of late 19th century onwards. And that is still in existence, or it was still in existence until very recently, because the Bangladeshis took it over. There was a huge leather-making aspect to this, you know, making leather jackets, trousers and that, that was in down the Roman Road in East London and also actually in Brick Lane. I think that's now, like everything else, is pretty much died out. And so what kind of impact did that have on the area? Them coming in? or Yeah, when you think about how they're responsible for things like the Birdcage Pub, that's such a lasting legacy. Mm. And when you think about a lot of the houses, I think, that were built were built for the silk weavers. Oh, absolutely. So what, what kind of lasting impact well, has I think it's, I think it still has a massive impact. I mean, you've got the big houses around Spitalfields. That was for the rich, the rich silk weavers. But there were swords and swords and swords of small uh, cottages with big windows at the top where the weavers worked. Weaver's Fields, you know Weaver's Fields? That whole area was street after street after street after street of small cottages for weavers. And within the names of the various streets and areas, one of the best Lord Mayors of London was a Huguenot. I mean, I think it's impossible to overestimate, actually, the impact they had over the years. And so with the majority of people in the area maybe being silk weavers, is it fair to say it wasn't a very lucrative job? It was very poorly paid. If you were at the top end of the market and you worked for a master, you could just about survive. Poor people like my family, who were at the other end of the market, they made ribbons and ties and things like that. And that was almost subsistence working. There was a lot of, when we started to buy, what, fabric from other countries, China, Mm. India, the weavers here wouldn't have been happy. They they weren't, well, they're not happy. They completely lost their work. There were riots. There were all sorts of things that happened. That's when workhouses burgeoned because people just were on the streets. I mean, that was when real poverty started to bite in the 1840s, 60s, 70s. And people had to look elsewhere for work. But, I mean, everything was really low-key work. Which then brings me on to my next question about if you want to earn more than someone that works in the garment industry, maybe you end up going into something like being a resurrectionist. A resurrectionist, (laughs) yes, yeah. Because you can earn a lot more money. Yeah, you could, you could, you could. To put it in context then, can you tell us about the wages? So, for example, what a weaver would make and then maybe what a resurrectionist would make? I can't actually remember the figures. We have to look it up. Well, look it up, but I do remember it being something like a weaver was a pittance and then you could earn about, on a good day, nine or ten pounds for a body. That was nine guineas. Nine Nine guineas guineas for a body, that was it. Nine guineas for a body. Yeah. Absolutely. And for a weaver, if you you weren't ten shillings, you'd be doing well, actually. Yeah. So there was a great imperative to actually do it, and that's why people did it. Yeah, so to just quickly put it in context, a shilling would be worth around 5p today, whereas a guinea would be worth around £1.5p, so a big difference between the wages. Um, so who were the resurrectionists then? The resurrectionists in, in uh, Bessnell Green were in a place called Nova Scotia Gardens, which is sort of where Crabtree Row was, opposite the Birdcage pub. Um, they were a group of friends that got together and uh, got into murdering young people to sell to the medical colleges, principally St Bartholomew's. And they did actually get caught and they did actually get hung for their crimes. And they sort of followed on from uh, Burke and Hare in Edinburgh. And uh, there was this mythical Italian boy that was supposed to have been murdered by them. It, it turns out he came from elsewhere, Gloucestershire, I think. And they just picked poor people up that were living on the streets, took them home to Nova Scotia Gardens, which was hardly the Ritz, drugged them and drowned them in the well, wrapped them up, took them to St Bart's Hospital and said, look what we found on the street. The fact that the corpse was probably sort of reeking of whiskey and God knows what, you know. But they, one very, very sensible judge got a whiff of this and um, got this young man exhumed and it was discovered he'd been murdered and that's how it all unfathomed. So I want to try and understand, because I feel like the Italian boy murder plays quite a big role mm. 
in the Columbia Road that we know today. And when you think about Columbia Road today, you think of flower markets and coffee shops. And I think one of the things that I found fascinating was that how gruesome this murder was. Yeah. So they were called the London Burkers. I think it was John Bishop. He was one of the main ones. And Williams and May. I can't remember their yeah. first names. But John Bishop lived in Nova Scotia Gardens. Where was Nova Scotia Gardens? It's opposite the Birdcage Pub. So Ravenscroft Park, is that mm, what it is? A bit more towards Civil House than that, really. Right. Because one of the reasons that they got found out was that the, the son of the, the uh, landlord at the Birdcage Pub saw them dragging what turned out to have been a wrapped body and putting it onto a cart mm. to take it to the hospital to sell. Um, and he was standing outside the pub, so it has to have been almost dead opposite there. It was a little warren of really, really low-grade, decrepit cottages. Because I think that's really hard to picture. That was one of the hardest things when I was reading it, was trying to picture Nova Scotia Gardens, because it sounds like a hole. So talk to us a little bit about what Nova Scotia Gardens was, what it looked like, what was in there, you know, the smell of it. Well, there's, there's two things, isn't there? There's the cottages that were sort of... They'd been part of the Huguenot... Uh, summer houses, and they'd been, like, chopped up into bits. So they were kind of very, very small hovels, probably done really badly. And behind it was a dust heap. Now, I'm very fond of dust heaps because I think they were the greatest recycling invention of ever because nothing in the Victorian era went to waste. You, so you had these families of people who went around getting the rubbish basically piling it up. I mean, this this rubbish heap was apparently taller. There was a church there called St Thomas's, which was a regular sort of sized church. And apparently the dust heap was at the, at the height at the top of the spire of the church. And there's one illustration that, you know, everybody uses because there's only one, of these fa- this family, like ants over there, sorting everything out, sorting the, basically, let's face it, faeces out, taking all the sort of uh, bits and pieces that they could use to make... Well, basically anything, really, anything they could use, and selling it on. And they became very, very rich. In your book, A Strange Kind of Paradise, thinking about the John Bishop, the resurrectionist confessions, you printed their confession Mm. in full. They got found out, like you say, they'd murdered the Italian boy. You'd list out, I think, two other murders in the book. Yes, yes. A woman... And and another lad. And another lad. Their kind of MO, modus operandi, was to reel them in, give them a bit of bread and cheese, drug them with... Laudanum. Laudanum, that was it. String them up, drop them in a well, (laughs) let it all run out of them. (laughs) And one of the things that I find so morbidly interesting about this confession that you print out in full is how gruesome it is and how matter-of-fact John Bishop is, but also how mundane it is. It's like six pages. We, we murdered him and then we went up the pub. You know, and it's that kind of, you know, really? <laughs> I thought it was such a fascinating read. That's why I put it in, because I read it when I came across the confession. I thought, I've just got to put this in. It's really, it's like kind of, so we're going to kill these people, then we'll go out for a pint, shall we? I mean, it was like kind of, really? We found him asleep as we left him. We took him directly, asleep and insensible, into the garden and tied a cord to his feet to enable us to pull him up by. And then I took him in my arms and let him slide from the headlong into the well in the garden, whilst Williams held the cord to prevent the body going altogether too low into the well. He was nearly wholly in the water, his feet being just above the surface. Williams fastened the other end of the cord round the paling and prevent the body getting beyond our reach. The boy struggled a little with his arms and legs in the water, and the water bubbled a minute. We waited till these symptoms were passed and then we went indoors. And afterwards, I think we went out and walked down to Shoreditch to occupy the time. And in three quarters of an hour, we returned and took him out of the well by pulling him by the cord attached to his feet. We undressed him in the paved yard, rolled his clothes up and buried him where we'd found him by the witness who'd produced him. We carried the boy into the wash house and laid him on the floor and covered him over with a bag. We left him there and went and had some coffee in Old Street Road and then little before two in the morning on Friday, went back to my house. We immediately doubled the body up and put it into a box, which we corded so that nobody might open it to see what it was. Then we went again and had some more coffee at the same place on Old Street Road where we stayed a little while. Then we went home to bed, both to the same house and onto our own beds, as usual. 
It's in so much detail. I mm. mean, I'm amazed at how much he can remember. Mm. The intricacies of finding these people, stringing them up by the well, May's holding them so that they don't go yeah. fully submerged in. Do you know what? Then we'll go up to Old Street, have yeah. some coffee. Then we went over to this ale house, stayed and had a pine. Yeah. You know, yeah. so interesting. Such a, yeah, morbidly interesting. And they, like you say, got hanged. Mm. So... Did Nova Scotia Gardens become a bit of a, a tourist hotspot? Oh, absolutely. The police let the public in. They charged them entry and they let them trample all over the evidence. <laughs> and they, they actually had somebody make little sugar motifs of, of the hanging of the men. And actually, uh, Bedette Coots and Charles Dickens got, got word of this and they really, really were horribly amazed, should we say? Mm. So they did it. They confessed that they did it. But, I mean, goodness knows what was lost. They did find some clothing from other people but goodness knows how many people they really murdered so columbia road today such an idyllic place to be beautiful part of east london really desirable houses but back then around the time of the italian boy murder oh really, it would have been terrible really. yeah i mean it was you know the huguenots at their height it was quite lovely mm. with these as i say these summer houses the majority of the rest of the area wasn't built on mm. That area from the Shoreditch Church end up to the birdcage was built on, but the rest of it was pretty much empty of right. houses. And it wasn't until the mid-19th century sorry, that the sort of houses that you see now were built. They were built... The cottages in what's called the Jesus Hospital Estate were built in the 1840s to 60s, late 60s. Columbia Road as it is now, was built around about 1870. So it slowly slowly got filled in. But it was notorious because of Nova Scotia Gardens and the dust heap. It was notorious as a really, really no-go area mm. in those days. And it was because of Andrew Bedeck Coates and, to an extent, Charles Dickens, who came and smelt and saw and actually saw Nova Scotia Gardens and all that it was, that actually she bought up the land and decided to build this complex called Columbia Market Square on it. It was a time when philanthropy in the Victorian era was really getting going. People were building houses for people to rent. They were sort of not cheap. And if you didn't pay, you got kicked out. Mm. And that's indeed what Angela Bedette Coots was like. And so she basically was the reason that in 1867-ish, I think, she actually built Columbia Market Square, which was the biggest failure as a market that anybody... <laughs> could have dreamt at the time, sadly. One thing that I thought was interesting about Angela Burdett-Coots is that we don't know about her. We don't know who she is. I hadn't come across her until I read your book. So tell us who Angela Burdett-Coots was. Well, she was a part of the Coots banking family. She inherited the total wealth of her grandfather. So she was an incredibly independently wealthy woman. She was very unusual. When she was in her 20s, she proposed to the Duke of Wellington, who was 80... I don't know why, but anyway, she did, and he, he, he turned her down. And she basically did huge amounts of philanthropic work. She was nobody's walkover, though. I mean, if you were in a flat of hers, if you didn't pay up your rent, you were out within a week. She was very Christian. She invested the Bishop Prick of British Columbia, which is why it's Columbia Road with a U, not an O as in Columbia. She also invested a few of the similar in Australia as well. And she got Henry Derbyshire, who was a well-known architect at the time, to design Columbia Market uh, Square, which was a market with flats around it. And the stairwells weren't allowed to have windows in, and all of the doors had to have a huge gap underneath because she firmly, funny now, in the middle of pandemic, she believed in fresh air and fresh air circulating so you didn't get sick, so maybe she wasn't so bad. But she weren't allowed to play, the children weren't allowed to play. It wasn't the best of environments, shall we say. But the other thing I would like to say is that there was a fantastic block of flats called the Ravenscroft Buildings, where Ravenscroft Park is now, built by another dwelling company. Um, they weren't quite so Spartan, and they were rather lovely, and um, they also got taken down, which mm. is a real shame, actually. So Angela Burdett Coots was the wealthiest woman in Britain at Absolutely. the time. Because she inherited her grandfather's Correct. fortune. All of it. So wanting to try and improve the area, she built, like you said, the Columbia Market... Square, they called it. Columbia they called it Columbia Market Square and Flats. And Flats. Can you just maybe tell us a little bit about those buildings in the sense that 
where where they are because oh. where they would have been rather because I, what I know. They, they were so fantastic so they started at opposite the bird cage mm-hmm. okay there was another street that went through to Hackney Road so it started there and it went all the way up to what is the small wooden nursery on Columbia Road and you know there's two pillars there with the lion on top that's that's her insignia and it went all the way back up to Hackney Road. Wow. And it was absolutely enormous. And when I was a child, it got bombed badly in the war. Uh, but when I was a child, we used to play in it. It was actually, you had corrugated iron around it, but everybody knew how to get in. And it was vast and gothic. But it never actually worked as a market because because of her religion, she had this bell tower built that actually played a motif from a hymn every quarter of an hour. And the local costermongers that were enticed in from the area didn't like it at all. So they took themselves elsewhere. So then she came up with the bright idea of getting Billingsgate Market to come in and she actually got the sanction to build a railway into Columbia Road Market Square. <laughs> and that also never happened. So, and then over the years it had various sort of spurious projects to get it up and running the market never worked the flats were always occupied i went to school with people that still lived in these and they were they were so drafty i remember going in there to play and finally in the the late 60s like that period when everything had to be new and brash they got knocked down Mm. was this the thing of victorian philanthropy was the idea that if you give people a nice place to live it would improve the rest of well, it'd improve their life, it would give them space, give them better health, mm. allow them to develop. I mean, there was the educational drive at the time as well. It wasn't just, just housing, it yeah. was all sorts of things. Yes, it was, because the thing is, the Victorians realised that the workforce really actually should probably be kept healthy. Shock. Shock. <laughs> Rather than just, you know, throwing them away when they get to about 28, you know, 29. And... They were the workforce that built the empire. So there was a lot of that. There was a lot of Christian ethic involved as well. So it it was a really good idea. But it was... When you read about the attitude towards the residents, though, with all of this, you know, you can't bung up the great sort of six-inch gap under your doorway and you've got to freeze to death and the corridors and and so on and so on. Oh, and you weren't allowed to put anything over the brickwork. You couldn't put anything. You couldn't put plaster. It had just to be bare. So it was kind of a mixed... Very, very mixed messages. I think that's what you mentioned in your book, isn't it? That the market and the apartments were kind of a colossal failure. They were. And part of the reason was because she didn't really take into consideration the needs of the community or no. what they would have been interested no. in. She just kind of bold, bulldozed Oh, no, I mean, in. it's top-down management these days. It's exactly what we see around us all the time. I've got a good idea. You don't like it, tough. Yeah. And that's it. And Kelsa Priest, no one wanted to use the market. Didn't she even have to start, like, paying the Billingsgate yeah, Oh, yeah, she traders. paid them to come in with their fish. And at the time she built that, the far end of Barnet Grove was a flower market that the Huguenots had set up. And that was widened and the area there demolished. So at the time that Bedeck Coots is having this sort of standoff about trying to get things in, this little flower market is, is, hasn't gone home. So it came down to Columbia Road. So that's when the Columbia Road flower market got established. So the market complex and the flats were built in 1869. When did the flower market move to Columbia Road? Shortly after. Shortly after. Mm. Okay, interesting. One of the last bits of homages to Burdock Coots, if you were in the area, the only thing there is the insignia on the two plinths pillars pillars. there's two there's two marble pillars by the nursery school at the western end of columbia road it's wooden and yeah there's a line there with her insignia around its neck and that's the only thing left that's the only thing left and she renamed it to columbia road so she's responsible for that so then moving into the 20th century who is now living in the area so what happened was that the um the major industry became the wood industry There were factories absolutely everywhere. So the prime professions, if you like, for the men were working in the wood factory or the gas works that was over the Hackney Road uh, where 
Haggerston Park is now. So that was a gas, huge gas works. And those two industries are there because of the presence of the Regent Canal, which was actually finished in 1820. The goods were brought in by water and then horse and cart down. Women worked from home making boxes, fireworks, stuffing fireworks. It was a very, very poor area, and it always was. Columbia Road was actually shops. Because there weren't supermarkets, you shopped as near as you could to home. There were no fridges. So Columbia Road itself was a complete shopping market. You didn't have... Uh, street, sorry. You didn't have to go anywhere. So we obviously we've got the shops now on that mm-hmm. eastern side of Columbia Road. Were there shops that ran down the west side as well, or was that more...? What, you mean to all Shoreditch? Yeah. They were uh, wood factories, mostly, and they ran all the way up. There are a few tailoring at the far end of columbia road was a group of jewish shops selling foodstuffs and basically you know there was a small jewish community there and there was a small jewish community underneath ravenscroft buildings had shops all around it so the shops that fronted onto columbia road were for comestibles if you like really and then on the around the corner on ravenscroft street they were the wood industry again Mm. so the air was full of wood dust all the time when when i was growing up i think that's really important to remember is not only does the street look different but the smell and like the air will look different Mm. the floor the the ground yeah Yeah. it was all covered in wood dust it was amazing yeah and so i guess one of the biggest events of the 20th century the war Mm -hmm. second world war Mm -hmm. i guess predominantly for the east end Mm -hmm. talk to us about what was in the area what did the street look like during the war before it was bombed so before it was bombed, if you start at what I call the far end of Hackney Road, the west end of where Hackney Road is, you've got the Leopold buildings, okay? And then opposite that, where there's uh, the council blocks, there was a small run of slightly taller buildings that were shops with accommodation above. They ran up to where the Bedeck Coots Lion is now, and then you had the whole of the Bedeck Coots development there. The shops ran all the way to the intersection of Gossett, which is Gossett Street now. And Ravenscroft buildings were opposite... Well, where, where Ravenscroft Park is, that was it. Behind that, the whole Dorset estate development were small houses. They were part of the same sort of scenario, if you like. But the minute you get to the birdcage, you know, you had the birdcage pub and the, you had the Ravenscroft buildings on your left looking down... And from all the way down, it was the same as it is now until you get to Ropley Street. And then what is now the halfway house was another run of very tall Victorian old workshops. All pretty grey and all pretty run down when I was a child. And then the war happened. Mm. What happened to the area? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It was really bombed badly. If you walk around, I'm going to mention Baxendale Street, which is just off of Columbia Road. There are two sets of red brick flats and there's a small park on the corner. The park on the corner was a big pub called the Baxendale Arms, apparently, and it had a music hall at the back of it. And a vast bomb fell on that and took that out and... The red brick flats behind that are where houses were. The same at the end of Baxendale Street, the red brick flats, they were all. Iron Square, when I was a child, it was a very small, pretty rose garden. The bit that's very flat now and all grassed during the war, it it was completely wiped out. There was a lovely, apparently, a lovely little square with tiny houses and they they were quite old, actually. I think they were in the 1830s. And one night, the whole lot went... The whole lot went. They called it a landmine. It came down on a apparently a parachute and just decimated the whole area. And if you walk around, you'll see pockets of where new houses are built. Bedeck Coots um, building, they used the basement as an air raid shelter. And one night, a bomb went down the air vent. And the air vent that started at um, ground floor level, at the bottom where people were sitting around, it was glass and people sat around it. I believe it was actually protected, but it didn't actually manage to stop the fact that, you know, there was huge carnage and many, many people died. And people died all over the place on the streets. My mum actually got machine gunned by a German aeroplane as she was walking down Columbia Road. And you can still see the bullet marks today. No. Yeah, she told me, yeah. No, on Columbia Road? Yeah, yeah. they came low and just shot. Where? It was uh, that number... Number 160, I think. That's ridiculous. 
Perhaps if they haven't filled them in with the refurbs, I'm afraid, you know, we're suffering refurbishment syndrome. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah, I mean, it was really badly bombed and night after night they went... They, people had shelters in their backyards and stuff like that. People... A lot of people sheltered in the arches near uh, what is Bethnal Green Underground Station now and th- apparently some of them, they got bombed really badly too. So the whole area was 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 a complete mess. Because that's why a lot of the original architecture and buildings aren't there because they were so badly... Oh, that's, that's most of it actually. They could have saved the Bedeckers building, but <sighs> the money it would have cost, and mm. I think by that point, I think it had come into municipal ownership. I can't quite recall. But um, it, the money to do that up would have been enormous. I just don't know why they didn't do the Ravenscroft buildings up. They were lovely and they were, they were small, a small development, you know, and they were really beautiful. Very Italianite. I have to mention, you brought me this wonderful photo. I'll post it on social media and online. But this photo is VE Day. Remind us what VE Day is. Victory in Europe Day, 1945, the 8th of May. Just for the benefit of the people listening to this photo, is it's on the street. This, oh God, maybe what, like 50 people in this mm-hmm. photo, all huddled together. There's flags British flags, people wearing hats. Obviously, everyone is jubilant at what's just happened. The shot was taken, I'm told, by somebody who was standing outside the Royal Oak in the middle of Columbia Road. And right in the middle is a character we called Diamond Lil, whose real name was Harry Young, who was probably what today you would call a transsexual. And she, we always called her she, she was born and lived in the area, lived in Guinness's buildings, and was a real, real character. Can you tell us a little bit about who Diamond Lil was, the the character of her? She was born somewhere in the area. Nobody's absolutely clear where, but she lived in in Guinness's buildings, latterly with her partner Maisie, who was sadly murdered and the murder remains unsolved to this day. Uh, Lil worked in various menial tasks, In really. She, she served in the pie and mash shop. There was one on Hackney Road near the Nags Head. She also worked down Spitalfields Market and she would turn up in full slap and heels, apparently, but uh, my auntie told me that and she swears to God it's true, so I have to believe my aunt. And she spent a lot of time singing in pumps for a beer and also she got paid and she had a... Do you know the drag queen Dave Lynn? Mm. Yeah, well, Dave's very like, very like Lil was. Doesn't pretend to have a, a, anything other than a male voice. But um, fantastic entertainer. And the first book I wrote, um, I interviewed a lady and she couldn't quite remember some of the stuff. And latterly, she told me that at the end of the war, before that photo was taken, Lil used to go around the streets with a beer crate stand on it and sing and have, you know, put the tin out for some money. And her favourite song was a, a song written in 1927 called I Want a Boy. And this woman sat in my front room in the year 2005 and sang it to me. Wow. So I transcribed it and I just got in touch with the British Library and said, I suppose, you know, and this chap sent me, the, sent me the sheet music. I thought it was quite amazing. So I actually wrote a musical about Diamond Lil and it's in the musical. No way. I want a boy. I want a boy. Not for a toy. Just to annoy. I want a nice young man who will understand. Don't want an ass. Who'll just hold your hand? I like to tease, I like to squeeze. I've heard that loving is simply divine. One who'd meet you in the hall, kiss you, squeeze you. That's not all Sit you down upon his lap Hug you till you snap I want a boy I want a boy I want a great big wonderful
amazed and fascinated that someone like Diamond Lil could have existed so freely back in... Ah, she was part of the tribe, you see. She was one of us. And that was, that was it, because um, I actually got beaten up at school by a boy who, who didn't live in, in the immediate area, who was sort of going on about Lil being a bloke and this, that and the other, and uh, I just kept calling her she because she was she to me. Yeah. And I went home with a black eye. My mum's sort of, what have you been up to? And I told her and she said, I've got to tell you something, love. She really is a bloke. I said, but mum, she said, no, 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 she is she. She's always going to be she to you, but she's actually a bloke. I mean... <laughs> and she lived, she lived dressed like that. I saw her, before she died, she reverted to sort of wearing trousers that were sort of more blokeish, if you like. But she also wore a twin set and pearls with them. I mean, I don't know. There were a few people around. When, I, when I've written the books, I've interviewed people and, and a couple of people said some of their family hadn't been keen on Lil. But the only time she got into trouble was when she went up the West End because she wasn't known. Mm. And around by us, it was just Lil. That was all there was to it. I mean, I feel like I should do just a separate episode on who Diamond <laughs> Lil was because she sounds amazing. So the war has happened. The whole of the road, the area is bombed out, damaged. Lots of people moved away. Lots of people moved away. Uh, lots of people that owned the wood factories moved away and never came back. Interesting. Um, houses were empty. They got Some of them became very derelict. And it remains that way until, I would say, the late 60s, early... Actually, no, the 70s, really. So how comes your family stayed? Well, they worked in the area. And mum had... Um, and mum and dad both had family. It was the classic. Our aunties were around the corner. So we all stayed because that was a family support. I went to school in the area. My brother went to school in the area. The schools weren't bad, believe it or not. I mean, it was where you came from. Mm. You didn't... Some of our family, my cousin John's dad went to live in Chingford because where he lived was completely bombed out. But some people stayed, some people went. The business people tended to go, Mm. some of them. My aunts took a shop on Columbia Road after the war. They made clothes and they had a whole entourage of ladies who came in and had their clothes made and their wedding clothes made and so people made the best of what they had but you, but you stayed really stayed where you came from because remember we're talking people had been there for centuries mm. really mm. you know and so talk to us about the columbia road that you remember that you think about well when i was a child the whole street as i said was you went shopping there were three butchers there was numerous greengrocers, cheese shops, dairy, bakers. Just it was a fully lively street. Uh, most people that worked in the shops uh, rented them and lived above them. So there was a sort of a real community feeling. There was Scott's the Bakers, which was in the on Shipton Street opposite the Nelson pub and I mean that was wonderful you wake up in the morning to the sound of the sound of the wood factory and the smell of the wood and the smell of the bread. <laughs> And every weekend it was very quiet apart from Sunday morning when the market's on. But the market was very small and they used to come with handcarts sometimes. And it was just for the locals. Nobody else knew it existed. A lot of the stuff was just sold off the floor, off the street. And it was a whole living community. Mum worked in the rag trade, inevitably. And she'd come home from work and we'd go and get food for dinner because she just went and got it. We didn't have a fridge for years, so, you know, you just got it fresh. And it was community. It was real community. And you could play on the street. You really could. You couldn't leave your key out. It was, that was a bit of a myth because we did have some dodgy characters. But, mm. um, yeah, it was, it was a real community. And you know nothing else when you're growing up. Yeah. I mean, you say it was, re- it was really grey growing up. The buildings, you know. But, I mean, the flower market on a Sunday. I mean, I only know of it, what it, it looks like wasn't today. Like it, isn't it? I mean, cut flowers and the, and the explosion of, of what you see today, that didn't come until the mid-'80s oh. when they got forklift trucks to bring stuff in. Because once forklift trucks were invented, they could bring bigger stuff. Until then, they couldn't. So it was all very small stuff. OK, so the flower market started after the Burdett Coots market complex yeah. and buildings were built around 1870. Yeah, yeah. That's how long the market, yeah. flower market has yeah. existed on yeah. the road. Yeah. 
And then it was just something small for locals. Yes. What kind of flowers were being sold? Well, remember, there were a lot of market gardens around. Right. I mean, it's particularly in Shoreditch, would you believe, at the end of Hoxton Street Market, where it is now, there were huge market gardens. I don't think they sold vegetables. I think they only sold flowers. But, they, you know, whatever they could grow and carry on a horse and cart, they would bring. Violets is the favourite, isn't it? But, I mean, there must have been loads of other stuff. I mean, it was obviously very busy during the spring when the people bought bulbs and that. Because to enliven your pretty grey existence, you know, you would grow stuff. I mean, people always grew plants, even in the backyards. And so you say that the market that we've come to know now exploded in the 80s because of the trucks or was there because of the trucks mostly well also in the mid 80s also the the artists really started to move in the artistic community with the first as it is with gentrification everywhere the artistic community moved in first into the cheap houses George who'd been running the market since the war sadly died last year he saw the, the possibility of expanding it he was a very sensible character and he had his own land out in Essex where he grew He's a horticulturalist. And hydraulic lifts at the back of trucks became available. Um, He bought one and he started bringing larger plants and products in. And it worked. So everybody else did. And that's when the market really went through the roof. Columbia Road is undeniably, and I I am biased, but Columbia Road is undeniably a special place Mm. and a special community. Mm. But why do you think it's so special? I've often wondered this. I I think a lot of it for us locals is because of the structure of the area and the fact that everything really funnels through Columbia Road from the flats and the cottages because everybody meets at the newspaper shop, Joe's, and it is it is the thoroughfare for the whole area. And now we've got the various greens. We've got the Iron Square Green and Jesus, but Jesus Green's kind of the real focus. It's just named after the Jesus Hospital Estate that bought the land. It's the real focus. I think it's the size of the houses because you can't really have huge populations. A friend of mine comes from Haringey and the, the ladder, they call it, which is the sort of runs of houses up there. And they're huge houses. And Andy said that, you know, the problem was they got split up into flats. So you had multiple occupancy. So you can't really get to know your neighbours or you didn't get to know your neighbours. And also a lot of action happens out on the street because we've got a lot of kids who we are, so they play out. So... And also we've got this tradition. I mean, there is a residence association that was set up to stop the demolition of the area in the 70s, and that's still going. And, you know, when normal times happen, we we have a programme of events all throughout the year for people, and we're funded by field money, predominantly. So that's a tradition. It's been there ever since. And even before the residence association, they used to have parties and that. I just think it's sort of memory, really, community memory to an extent, and there's a few people still around keeping it going. And by and large, the people that move in, they're a mixture, and there are people that, that get involved and people that don't, but that's the same the world over. Mm. And so this kind of brings me on to my next and maybe final question then, is Columbia Road today, from one resident to another, I have moved in, what, maybe 60, 70 years after you, mm. What do you make of Columbia Road today? Um, we was, it's okay if it's not positive. We were talking earlier, and I think that the, the level of gentrification is too fast. I think the provision has become biased towards, should we say, newcomers and people that come to visit the area don't live there. And I think it's inevitable in a capital city for an area that is very much near the centre of the capital city for this to happen. But the speed has been huge and we, we've kind of lost a bit of a sense of community, I think, because of that. Um, I think, though, that it will persist because there's enough people like you and me and loads of others that actually care enough about the area and each other to make it continue for what it is today, a a kind of strange kind of paradise. But I just want to tell you, my dad said to me once, because, you know, when he got really unwell and in the end they had to move because the house was very damp on Columbia Road. And um, he didn't want to go because that's where he came from. And he looked at me and he said, one day people are going to realise where this place is, as it physically is in relation to the rest of London, and you won't be able to buy in for love nor money. And he was absolutely right. I mean, he really hit the nail on the head there, didn't he? Yeah. 
Well, Linda, thank you so much yeah. for sharing, God, what, nearly 400, 500 years of history mm. of a street and something that's so special to you yeah. as well. You've got three books out. The first one, let's give you a little plug. The first one, Watercress But No Sandwiches, 300 Years of the Columbia Road. Yeah, that's the little cottages behind Columbia Road. And then your second one, my personal favourite, Columbia Road, A Strange Kind of Paradise. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's beautifully made. It's Thank you. beautifully made. It's a local boy who did it for me. Really? Yeah. yeah. I bought my copy from Harry Brand. Oh, we Columbia. had a chat about you. Mm. <laughs> oh, good. You can't get away from us, you know. Well, I mean, that's the community vibe of oh, well, it, I guess. Oh, said, here, I hear you're going to be on the radio. I said, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so funny. I kind of chuffed, though. <laughs> to, you know, th- these characters in the street who I kind of, you know, low-key admire, yeah. knowing that they're just having conversations and being part of that is really special. And then your third one, Columbia Road of Blood and Belonging. Now, that's an interesting title, isn't it? <laughs> it is an interesting title. And this is your memoir. Yeah, that's... Uh, the blood bit isn't what you think it is. It's because I was a scientist. I feel like we just need to kind of do Desert Island Discs with you, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> we need to get you in. Yeah. While I've got you on record, let's get you in to do another one <laughs> about this. Um, such a fascinating, fascinating reads, fascinating history, fascinating person. Linda, thank you so much. And thank you. Thank you for your time and thank you for loving my street. And thank you for listening. If you want to check out any photos from the episode, make sure to follow the East London History Show on Instagram, where you can find photos of Angela Burdett Coots, the old Columbia Market Complex, Diamond Lil, and so much more. Also, if you've got the time, it would be great if you could leave a rating and review. It's only a little show, so any extra help would be amazing. Now get out there and get exploring. See if you can find any of the bits of history that Linda's mentioned, from the last remnants of the original market complex in the form of cast iron statues by the Columbia Market Nursery School, to the site of the Italian boy murder in Nova Scotia Gardens. It's also worth mentioning that the flower market is, of course, a staple on a Sunday morning, but the shops are also open from around Wednesday onwards, so if you want to experience the beauty of the street on a quieter day, Head down during the week, get yourself a coffee and a sandwich from somewhere like Lupo's or Columbia Cafe and have a little mooch. A big thank you to Hoxton Radio who provided the studio, David Harris for reading out the London Burkers Confession, the British Library for providing the sheet music to I Want a Boy and Dave Cribb for singing and playing the piano. Next time, we're three metres below modern-day ground level in Shoreditch, uncovering Elizabethan playhouse The Curtain. People think that theatre perhaps began on, on the South Bank or at the West End, but no, it actually all began in East London. And it's really where a lot of the things that we expect when we go and see a play today were first formalised and where the, the theatre as a, as a sector, as an industry began. Until then, bye-bye for now. <laughs>